You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to invite you now, as, as is our custom, every Sunday, but as is our custom for the last year and a half, into the Gospel of Matthew, into the 16th chapter. So as we're walking through books of the Bible as a church, I want to invite you to join us. If you don't have a Bible or a a smartphone or something that would get you access to one, that's okay. There's a blue paperback Bible in a tray, in a chair that's in front of you. In fact, that's our gift to you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please make that even a gift to yourself or to to someone else you may know who doesn't have a Bible. Uh, We want to put as many copies of this good news into as many hands as possible. And so don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is one of the first times you've opened it. As we we share regularly, something powerful happens that when we open the Bible, by the power of God's Spirit, the Bible actually starts to open us. And so whether that's the first or the thousandth time, there are treasures uh, that we find that that come pouring out of it. And so uh, since last year, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in the turning point of the entire book. Some of the most important things in the whole of the Gospel of Matthew are found in this chapter. We see uh, who Jesus is, like uh, what is the nature of who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. We'll see more of that even today. But, but we saw last week then, in light of Jesus, what is the nature of the church? Who, who are these people that are followers and disciples of Jesus? And, and we find that they are Christ's earthly representative, as we'll reread in just a moment, with, which chronologically makes Peter the first one to make this profession of faith, as we'll read in a moment, the first one to confess this, which is the, the basis and the, uh, the center point of our even gathering this morning. And so we've been walking through this, but the, the last part of this particular chapter, Jesus gives us some predictions about what it is that he is setting out to accomplish what it is that he's going to do on behalf of his followers and how it will look for them to follow them. And so uh, I've hoped that we would land in this chapter during Holy Week, that is the celebration of Good Friday, the, the, the death of Jesus, that because of what God has accomplished through him, the most tragic and awful injustice in the world, when the only innocent man that ever walked the planet was betrayed, falsely accused, and killed. Christians look at and say it was good. And the reason why is what we celebrate in this turning point of Matthew chapter 16. So join me as we're going to read uh, quite a a bit of this, the last half of the chapter, so you'll see all of it in context. We're going to spend our time focusing on the last verses, verses 24 through 28, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. So you'll see the context of this discussion about who Jesus is, who the church is, and then what it is that Jesus will accomplish and what his disciples will look like as they follow him. So, So join me as we kind of eavesdrop into Matthew telling us all these powerful things, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, 
if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I pose to you a question as we've begun almost every week walking through the Gospel of Matthew. I pose to you another one. The question that is asked here in the middle of verse 26 that I think sets the stage for what we celebrate today on Easter, but also for what we see in this passage. What shall a man give in return for his soul? I know we got real deep real fast. What are you worth? What is your life worth? What is your soul worth? That's the question that Jesus asks and answers in what we celebrate on Easter, but also in what he invites his disciples into. What is a person worth? And I think as we saw in the passages leading up to this, that the certainty of the suffering and death because of sin, we also see the certainty of Christ's resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And in it, we were invited to see these multiple paradoxes. A life to lose and yet a life to find. A self to lose but yet a self to gain or find. And in and in our time together, I have one point, one single point to make and compel you toward in the time that we have together. Nothing you can lose is greater than what you can gain in Jesus. Nothing. There is not a single thing that you could lose that is greater than what we are offered and freely given in Jesus. And I hope I can show you this by by you see in the five different verses that we're walking through, by what we deny and yet what Jesus says we take up. The second paradox is what we lose and yet what we save and find, and even in light of losing. And the third paradox, what we gain in light of what we forfeit. In the last two verses, we see this picture of how it is that Jesus will repay after asking what a person is worth, what it is that he will pay, and then lastly, who it is that will say, see death and who it is that will see the kingdom. So the, in the first three verses there, of, starting in verse 24, this picture of a, a paradox. This is Jesus just being a good rhetorician, being a good communicator, illustrating for his students something powerfully. And so you know one of the best ways to do that is through repetition. And so he repeats kind of the same point three different times about what you deny and take up, what you lose and gain and find, and what then again you gain or what you forfeit. And then we'll wrap up on this idea that Jesus ultimately sees through these things and will return in some powerful way. So, before we go any further, there's a word there that I have to define and, and invite you to like deep contemplation and reflection. So, if you're, a, man, if you're a kind of a philosophical, abstract thinker, you're going to love this. If you're not, it's okay. Jesus is more concrete. But there's something powerful here. He uses the same word multiple times, and it's translated in different ways. Now, that makes sense. You and I use several words that mean different things. But, but Jesus does this as a, as a way of inviting us into some sort of deep thinking. And so I know uh, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you stayed up late last night and deep thinking isn't the, the first thing on your mind, but try. Come with me. If you kind of space out and go somewhere where there's palm trees, that's fine. We'll, we'll meet again in just a moment. But this word that's translated, do you see there, Starting in verse 25, life, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says, what does it profit a man that he gains a whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man gain in return for his soul? And so the word 
of, that's translated life in those first two instances in that first verse I read and soul in the second two instances is the same word. It's the word psyche or suke, where we, where we obviously get our word psychology. That is the thought of the mind. But obviously, when, when you talk about a person and their soul or life, you're meant to think in deeper ways. Because after all, beginning with the question, what is your life worth? You have to ask yourself what it is. Right? It, it might be one way to get at it is to ask, like, who are you? You could spend the rest of your life trying to figure that out. But it also might even be helpful to ask, what are you? And if you're having a real good time and thinking really deeply, why are you? Why do you even exist? Why is there a you? You get the idea? And how you would answer each of those different questions would be different, would it not? With respect to value, purpose, identity, right? You get the idea. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the purpose of this is Jesus is being a good teacher. He's kind of trying to confound you with a mystery so that you'll look deeper into this. As if to say, there's life and then there's life. Right? I wish I had a better way to illustrate this, right? It's just, I almost have to just kind of pantomime this, right? With maybe with scare quotes, uh, right? It's kind of like, there's life, and then there's life. Again, I wish I had better than that. This is what Jesus gives us, right? There's, there's, there's a soul, and then there's a soul. Other translations get at this kind of multifaceted thing, and it's not something you can easily pin down or pick one particular word, because after all, can you yourself be pinned down? You might even, I hope, if you're, if you're younger in the room, maybe if you're kind of more... Uh, more Gen X to millennial, uh, this will resonate with you. If you're older than that, this will kind of make you nauseated. But think of it this way, like, what is your authentic self? It's a big deal. That, that's something that, that our culture is wrestling with. What is an identity? Where do you get it? And all that's wrapped up in it. This is a good question to ask. Who are you really? No, really. That is... When no one else is looking, when you're not putting on a show, who are you really? And those kinds of questions get you at this teaching that Jesus is offering. That on one hand, that will be the thing that you lose. And on the other hand, that will be the thing he gives you. Who you really are will be demanded of you. And again, I can't do this any different than by means of just inflection, but who you really are will be given to you. So, why does he say this? Well, you saw briefly in the context here that the climax of the chapter, or the whole book, is in the profession of Jesus, or profession of Peter. Did you hear that? He finally sees Jesus for who he is. We've been introduced for the last 15 chapters, people who didn't quite get Jesus and people who were opposing Jesus. And so the turning point is, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is what we gather to celebrate and commemorate every time we get together. That's it. That's the, the cornerstone. Quite literally, he says, the rock, the, the foundation of our being, that Jesus has come to do something and grant something to us. It changes everything. And yet, even Peter didn't quite get it. And right on the heels of uh, Peter being commended, probably being told the nicest thing anyone has ever been told in the Bible by Jesus, right? Blessed are you. You are, right? You are, you are known and loved and, and even, you, you're hearing my father. And immediately when he's done, he says, by the way, don't tell anyone. And it's probably because of the next few verses, beginning of verse 21, because right after he gives Peter the greatest blessing he's ever given anyone, he gives Peter the greatest rebuke. You get it, but there's still much to learn. And, and he equates even the statement of Peter with a temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. Namely, our greatest temptation, the one that Satan offers, the enemy offers, is glory or pleasure without a price. Glory and pleasure without a price. Because this ignores the separation that sin has now created between us and God. And Peter, when he hears that Jesus is going to suffer and die, and probably immediately connects the dots, like, well, that probably means bad things for me, pulls Jesus aside and said, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. 
and offered the same temptation that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. Namely, if you'll just stop doing what you're doing, if you'll stop going to the cross, I'll give you anything. And so, in light of this, he gives an encouragement to Peter. It may not sound like it, but, but it is an encouragement. Even if that encouragement is a prediction of death and of suffering. But that it will have meaning. That whatever he would lose would not ultimately be a loss. But I say it, as I said it a moment, again, a moment ago, that nothing, nothing you can lose, Jesus tells to Peter, is greater than what I am offering you. And even if you were to lose everything, it's still not greater than what I offer you. Because after all, suffering naturally gives rise to doubt. When you and I experience pain and suffering, one of the most natural responses is doubt. Skepticism, cynicism. After all, you got to relate to Peter here as, as Jesus predicts suffering and even death. Because how can you believe in God in the face of such horrendous suffering? And yet at the same time, Jesus introduces that as a question you and I ought to ask. In fact, what do you tend to do in response to suffering? Because it may be the most important thing about you. If I were to kind of connect the dots here for you even, what you do in the face of suffering is your authentic self. Your thoughts in the midst of horrendous suffering and even death at the face of death is probably the most true thing about you. It probably is, as we would say here, your life. It is your soul. There's nothing more revealing in this world than suffering. Nothing. After all, a person in pain is probably the most honest person there is. We don't like to admit that. And so to say, as he repeats from the, the few chapters before, that one must take up a cross in order to understand and receive what Jesus is offering is to say that they must face their most honest doubts, their deepest fears, their deepest insecurities. That is, the things that are true about us that we wish were not. And yet that is the life. That is the self. That is the soul and once you begin to contemplate that, I believe you see something more beautiful. Because after all, do you hear the kind of the preview to what we celebrate this morning? What Christians have celebrated for 2,000 years in those words, right? If there's nothing more revealing about us than suffering and death, then friend, just stop for a minute. What do we find that is revealed about Jesus in his? The good news that you and I get to here over and over as we have already sung that suffering and death do not get the last word. And that's not just the most revealing thing about Jesus. It's for those of us who have turned from our sin to trust in Jesus, the most revealing thing about us. The cross is an affront to a cheap view of God's grace. Because while God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption is offered freely to us, it is free to us, it does not mean that it is free completely. Someone paid for it. Grace is, grace is not that God has loved us at no cost. Oh, no, 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 no. Grace is that God has loved us, loved us at his cost. And any part of us that thinks, oh, our sin isn't that big a deal, is confronted with the cross. Where God came to be with us and for us to pay a price that you and I could never afford. Any part of us that thinks that sin is not a big deal is confronted by the cross. And yet, any part of us that says to be Christian is easy and God's grace is cheap is also confronted by the cross. And so for the prideful, the the cross is a stumbling block, an offense, God's opposition. And yet for the humble, any part of us that thinks that no one cares about our suffering, any part of us that thinks that no one cares about even our life, is what? 
also confronted by the cross. And while it's crushing for the prideful, it is deeply comforting for the humble. The cross was a public spectacle. And so for, in verse 21, him to state his kind of paradox that Jesus from that time uh, began to teach that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer these things. In verse 24, when he illustrates them clearly, he says, if anyone would come after me, if you're, if you're going to be a part of what I'm doing, if you're going to be a part of this new kingdom I'm bringing, you have to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. Those are strong words. The cross was reserved for a special group of people. The cross was a public spectacle. It was the most shameful event possible. It was an instrument of punishment and torture reserved for the most despicable people in society, the people who were not even human. And any understanding of Jesus must include the scandal of the cross. Jesus didn't die a gentle death like Socrates with a cup of hemlock. Instead, as one author puts it, he died like a lynched victim, publicly ridiculed, tortured, a subhuman criminal in torment on a tree of shame. The cross isn't just something that you wear or something that you display, Jesus says. The cross is something that you bear and ultimately something you die on. And so in the course of a few moments, Peter went from being the mouthpiece of God, right? <laughs> the first professor to see Jesus as the Christ to almost immediately becoming a tool of Satan <laughs> because he could not connect the vicarious suffering that we find, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 53 with the Son of Man who would come in glory. He expected Jesus to triumph over evil and not be overcome by it. After all, how could God's revelation be found uh, connected with the most shameful and despicable and cursed of all deaths? A tree of shame? The cross in the time of Jesus was the most barbaric form of execution, the most barbaric form of cruelty, the absolute opposite of what we would think of in terms of glory, the absolute, off, the, uh, the op absolute opposite of what we would think of in terms of fame, and yet, until we see that, did you hear that? Until we see that, we have not rightly seen Jesus. Until we've contemplated that and contemplated what it would look like to put ourselves in his shoes. And until you have, he says, you, you haven't even heard this good news. So I know it starts dark, it starts awful, but the paradox continues before it gets good. Verse 25, For whoever would save his life, again that word, self, if you want to preserve yourself, then ultimately you have to lose it. You have to give it up. And whoever gives it up for the sake of Jesus finds out what it really is, actually receives or finds it. The next verse gives the, another view of that paradox from another angle. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? You, you kind of get this, this picture that I think most of you get. I, I think you would, it would make sense. That is that whenever you try as hard as you can to find yourself, to put yourself in a particular thing, that's when you're the most hollowed out. Right? So, so think of it like when you're living for yourself, that's when you're the worst version of yourself. When, when you see the world as small and you as large, no one can stand you. And yet, ironically, you know this. The people you love, the people that are heroes in your life and mine, are the people who sacrificed greatly for us. Right? I share this with, with young parents all the time. Was you're, staying up, you're staying up in the middle of the night for a child. Great, good, just do me a favor, call your mom and tell her thank you, right? Because now you start to realize, oh, I used to do this too, right? And the people you love and honor are the people who have sacrificed the most greatly, right? The heroes that we celebrate are the ones who have given the most. The people who have allowed us to benefit, right? You get, you know this is true. And Jesus says, this is a picture this is something that you will see in me and yet will start to show up in you. 
I mean, after all, when you, right, if you just live for your career or your success, that's when you become the most hollow, superficial version of yourself. Right? If, think, think of this. This is, this is uh, it's both awful and, and, and beautiful. Social media has uh, amplified the most extreme things. Uh, so, I mean, you know, take that for what it is, but you're getting the most extreme version of whatever you're looking at, and the algorithm wants you to know that you can make money off of you with that. All right. But in light of that, like, living for likes, living for the approval and attention of others makes you the most hollow version of yourself. And you know, like, you know this, you know what it's like to feel used, don't you? Like, we all know what it's like to have met someone and, and realize, I don't think you're really for me. I think you're kind of using me. And, and you see, like, that's, that's when you see the most hollow version of that person. Because when you live for that, when you, right, when you live for approval, you become a pretty annoying person no one can trust, right? When you live for a particular thing, you become the worst version of yourself. You become the most hollow version of yourself. And yet, we know this in principle, when you live for others, when you live sacrificially, something else happens, Right? something more beautiful happens. And the people that you and I love and honor lived for something bigger than themselves. In effect, they were willing to live not for themselves, but to lay down and give up their self, their soul, their life, their being. They were willing to lay that down for something bigger. And friend, the beauty in that is simply an image of the beauty of the character of God visible to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you lay down yourself, the most full and beautiful version of yourself becomes visibly, or becomes visible. So this paradox, this what you gain and what you lose, ought to invite you to think about the question, what is a person really worth? Because after all, if you gained everything in this life, but lost eternity, you've made a poor investment. And we all know what that looks like, right? When you gamble off futures to put food in your mouth, right? When you gamble off your future to make it through today, that's survival mode. That's not living. And so also, if, if you pour yourself out to get something in this life that ultimately sacrifices your, again, life, then you've made a poor business deal. So what does he mean then by the last two verses? If the paradox is that we see through Jesus the, the greatness of what we gain in him, even in light of what we might lose, even if what we lose is our own life, then the last two verses give us a window into what it is that Jesus will do to accomplish that. How it is that we will gain these things. I'll, I won't bury the lead here. Those two verses are about something in the future. For the Son of Man, that language there again, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then the second part, did you see? They're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there's something about what Jesus is going to, in the future, come to do, in the future at least from these people listening, that he's going to accomplish that will show them exactly what it is that they're going to gain. And it will show us what it is that we gain, even, in the, even though we might lose anything. And there's encouragement. Now, okay, so, so remember I told you this, whenever Jesus is teaching and speaking cryptically, he's not doing it on accident, okay? If he says something that's mysterious, it's because he wanted you to think it was a mystery, right? And so there's always levels to what we, how we interpret what Jesus says, the level of like what's most literally true for the people listening, namely the disciples who are listening here, and then what's more broadly true for Christians who would come after, and then, and then even what's more eternally true. And you'll see there's layers, every, everything he says here has each one of those layers included, Right? So, most narrowly, what does he mean by the people here will not taste death? Uh, I mean, what a, what a long-winded, I heard one author said, what a long-winded way to say that. Uh, he could have just said, okay, uh, just so you know, guys, some of you won't die. Uh, you'll see this before you die. But he doesn't do that, right? He's a good rhetorician. He's a good preacher. And so he's using by means of force and analogy. Some of you will, no, I mean, just listen to this, it's poetic. Uh, Truly I say to you, right, already, that's a, that's poetic, right? Pretty, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even introduce myself that way, but I should, right? 
Truly, I say to you, you're like, okay, who does this guy think he is? Well, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, right? You see, you hear the poetic language. You can imagine those standing there, the disciples going like, I have a name. I'm right here, right? But it's, it's more forceful than that. It's more powerful. Some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Now, literally, what that means is a few things. One, we know this is true because Judas will not survive to see the resurrected Jesus. So he's saying, not everyone, even here amongst my disciples, will get to see what I've come to accomplish. When I bring this kingdom through my body broken, my blood shed, and my body and broken, my, my body broken and blood shed, resurrected into new life, not everyone will get to see it, but some will. He means that, but also it means, if you just even see, they added a a chapter break here. The the chapter breaks weren't originally here. Matthew didn't write 17 for the next chapter, but we'll see next week, even the first verse of 17, you can see it there. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And then he was transfigured, and they saw the fullness of Jesus and his divinity and his fulfillment of the prophets, right? And so even on the second level, it's kind of, no, literally, not everyone's going to get to see this. Uh, Namely, there's nine of you, don't do math out loud. There are nine of you that won't see what, what these three will see in the very next verse. But then more broadly, most narrowly, it just means that some of these people wouldn't see it. But most broadly, it means something even more powerful. On one hand, he's saying that literally these people won't know. But on the other hand, he's telling his disciples and he's telling you and me, don't fear death. Now he does it beautifully and poetically. Don't fear death. The thing that you really need, the thing that you really long for, you'll see your very purpose for living before you die. You will see Christ's kingship on display and you will see it in your very life. Maybe more broadly, I think what he's saying here and is encouraging for us, the kingdom that Jesus will bring as judge and ruler is not a pie in the sky when you die. It's not something that hopefully we get to experience one day. It's not a reward, right? I I mean, just that's one of the most powerful things you can ask a person is tell me about paradise. Tell me about heaven, right? And, and I, 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 got, I just regularly get a chance to, to hear that. I'm, it's, just freshly, it's just fresh in my mind. I got, to, I got to be a part of officiating my uncle's funeral this last week. Uh, what a week to do that, right? Um, and yet at the same time, I was kind of discouraged uh, because people talk about heaven in a powerful way. And I encourage you to think about how you think about heaven. Like, what's heaven going to be like? And, and even though we're, we, we, we say like consumerism is not helpful, it's not a, it's a, it's a, maybe it's a great economic force. It won't satisfy your soul, right? Um, and yet, when most people talk about heaven, what do they do? They talk about a consumer version of heaven. I can't, be, you know, I can't wait uh, till I get you know, gold on the streets and a mansion of my own, right? And, and, then, and even, you see then, uh, also, it's just kind of like a, a family reunion. I get to meet all my loved ones. I get to see them all. I remember there was, a, there was an old hymn I heard. Uh, I don't know if you can call it a hymn. But it was a song that Christians would sing. It was called, I've Got a Mansion Over the Hilltop. And Jesus is not mentioned in that song once. And all you needed is a house in Beverly Hills with all your family in it to get that one. I mean, it, that can be done. It can be done. And, and here's the, the beauty of this is like, the good news that Jesus is bringing is not a pie in the sky when you die. The best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. Now, he happens to bring along all sorts of treasures and amazing things, but the most beautiful thing is that Jesus is there. And I've asked this, like, I think it was four Easter's ago. I'll keep asking it. Just stop for a minute and imagine what we would do if Jesus walked in the door. Just, I mean, really, just imagine. And I'll go first. I would shut up. Or bow and pour, or at least if I didn't shut up, I'd go, look, and then, I don't know. I wouldn't have words, right? And th- that's, that's the picture here. That's the picture. This is not just something that, it's not a reward that you get later, even though it might be a payment of some sort given by God's grace. But it's not that only. 
Jesus tells us this in, 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 in John's gospel, that he has come, what? Not that we would just have life, right? You hear it again? Not just life, but life, right? You can't even translate. He's like, I didn't come just to bring you life. I came to bring you life. And the way we translate it is more abundant. And so here's the broad application of his encouragement here. Very long-winded way to say it. Don't fear death. Death is not what you think it is. Your purpose for existing and living, your value and your even, even your very soul cannot be hindered by death. And in fact, to think that it can, to fear that it might, we saw in the previous verses, is satanic. That's what the enemy wants you to think. Maybe think of it this way. There's a difference between living and self-preservation. There's a difference between living and self-preservation. Trying to preserve something that will ultimately slip through our fingers is not living. And he gives us a picture that not only will greater things come from letting those things go to receive what he brings, but to realize that nothing can stop him from doing what he's going to do. Namely, he's coming. Said it twice, coming. And the suffering servant of Isaiah is the son of man who will rule over all things. And we celebrate today that the son of man, the one who was human, did what no human could, namely not stay dead. And yet, at the same time, the one who is truly the son of man who comes on the clouds, God himself does what even God evidently, we would think cannot do, namely what? Die. And yet we see the picture of the, the majesty and glory of God, not by avoiding suffering and death, but by suffering and dying in our place. And so the encouragement for them is also for us. While some of you are alive, you will see with your own eyes Jesus enthroned as king. After all, you and I are living in a time and place on the other side of the, the tomb and the empty grave. We're living on the other side where we get to look and go, I can't believe this. This is amazing. The disciples hadn't seen this yet. And, and for some reason, he even says some people won't. And even in your life and mine, some people won't. And yet we are offered this as a gift. So let me give you some encouragements and some applications here then. The first kind of encouragement, practical encouragement, in the middle of suffering. I, I put this first because it, it might be the most important thing. Uh, maybe this is a great week for you, right? Maybe this isn't a week of suffering. I had a friend of mine, a uh, pastor friend of mine, who texted me pictures of this little baby girl that he and his family adopted. Uh, and so for them, holy smokes, it's like this week is, um, if I were to sit here and talk about suffering, they'd be like, well, okay, that's, oh, that doesn't apply to them. Not, not at the moment, right? And so if that's you, maybe in this room, and maybe this is the best week, and I thank God for that, what a gift. Uh, then at least take note of some of these things because as sure as I'm standing here, suffering will come. Disappointment will come. You will face loss and uncertainty. And the most practical encouragement for you, and especially if maybe if you're in the room and that's not you, like, man, this is not a great week. This is, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm suffering. I, I'm aware of my own, my own finitude. Then look here at this practical encouragement encouragement that Jesus says in his own body, your suffering is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. After all, this Easter morning, we look and see that this is accomplished. We realize that the resurrected Christ went to the cross and to the grave for a purpose. It was not meaningless. I love the, the passive language in verse 21, that he would be raised Right? The picture isn't that, that Jesus raised himself, even though I think sometimes I've worded it that way. But, but um, there's some truth to that, right? If we're truly Trinitarian. That makes sense. But, but notice the passive voice that evidently he fully lost his life, fully gave himself for you and for me, and yet was fully given a greater life, a resurrected life, even a, an exalted a life that is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, because of Jesus, your suffering and even, God help us, your death is not meaningless. 
and it doesn't get the last word. And so Jesus is saying, I have suffered so that when you suffer, you'll look like me. You'll look like the kingdom. And in your suffering and in Jesus' suffering, united together in some miraculous way, the kingdom is advanced. Easter morning is the encouragement to say that in the language of coming back in verses 23, or excuse me, in verses 27 and 28, is the encouragement that this is not the end. In light of the cross, you can know that even unbearable suffering is not meaningless. Here's two illustrations I think that you've heard me say on other Easter's, but I'll run through them quickly. If if we know that this is not the end, then the encouragement is stop trying to preserve yourself, right? Stop trying to save your life. Start thinking about what you could give your life toward. And now, by the power of the gospel, you start to begin to see what faith in Jesus looks like. But here's the two illustrations. Uh, Valentine's Day and religion. Uh, Valentine's Day and religion. All right, Valentine's Day. Uh, some of you look great today. Uh, I wore a coat today. It's because I'm going to take a picture with my daughters and send it to my mom. That's her love language. She thinks I'm handsome and smart. So I'm going to run with that. I'm going to run with that. But beware of the, beware of the temptation that's there, right? Uh, if you only show love to your uh, say spouse, like a husband or wife, if you only show affection and kindness and gentleness on Valentine's Day, uh, that's not good for you. In fact, that makes things worse. It's a betrayal of who you really are. And I just warn you, maybe if this is the case, if you're thinking about doing that, I mean, yeah, celebrate Valentine's Day. But on the other hand, realize that that's, that's, not, that's not a revelation of true care and love. And in fact, that person, I warn you, is going to be more upset about the other 364 days uh, than they are glad for that one. Uh, and they will resent you even more, right? Because that's what hypocritical kind of love is. And so on one hand, right, celebrate Valentine's Day, right? Look for all the opportunities you should get to share love to the people you love. I'm not saying don't do that. Absolutely do that. It's a special day. And yet on the other hand, celebrate all the other days. And so the illustration here we see is that even though today is a special day, we celebrate with Christians And we celebrate, because that's what Christians do. We celebrate all the good gifts we've been given. All of them. We look for opportunities to party. That's what we're going to do in eternity because of Jesus. So we do that a little bit here, right? And yet, on the other hand, if you're looking for something spectacular, while I'm glad you're here, uh, we do have that. On the other hand, that may not be helpful. The beauty here we see is not what God necessarily gives us when things are going well. The beauty we see here is what God gives us when we feel like we've lost everything. And so, friend, man, you look good. Take pictures, uh, wear pastels, right? Year-round even, I don't know. That'll be your Easter celebration, right? Celebrate today. Tell someone you love how much you care about them. Celebrate how good God has been. And yet at the same time, don't let that distract you from like how a beautiful spring day might make you feel. Realize the resurrection, the resurrection is not victory for those who have it figured out and are cleaned up. The resurrection is victory for those who have lost everything. The resurrection is good news for those who have nothing to offer, namely the dead and those who are dead in their trespasses. That leads to the second illustration, I think, this idea of glory that's coming. Valentine's Day and religiosity or religion. In the same way that like looking for Valentine's Day to fix your marriage will make it worse, so also the beware of the temptation of religion today. That is, the, the foundation of religion is that there's a, a, a gap between us and God, and, and we can repair it. We can earn our way back. The, the, the picture of this rich young ruler is a, a great thing I would encourage you to Google this week, right? A man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? As if to say and imply and assume, I can do that. Beware of that temptation because the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus 
offends people because of one thing. It rips the control that we think we have out of our hands. And so it is an affront, an offense to the prideful this morning and a balm and encouragement for the humble. The offense is that in light of what Christ has done for us, dying in our place and resurrecting victorious on our behalf, there is nothing that you can do to guarantee your future. And for the self-reliant and the uh, self-righteous in the room, religion is a great temptation for you. I can clean myself up. I can do better. I can try again. And maybe even just all the excitement right in this room might tempt you to thinking, I'm going to do better. And the cross and the empty tomb says, no. You can't do anything to guarantee your future. Jesus says, I must and will do it for you. And this is outrageous. It's downright disrespectful to the prideful. And yet on the other hand, for the humble, if while the good news of the resurrection against the religiosity that's in our heart to kind of think we are better than we are and can earn our way in, if if the good news of the resurrection is an offense to the prideful by, by by saying you can't do anything to guarantee your future, then the good news of the resurrection for the humble is that you don't need to do anything for your future. And so for the prideful, it comes as an offense, right? Don't do better this week, right? Just rest in what Jesus has done. I dare you, right? Just give it a shot. Try, try to be good, like, I'm actually not going to do any better. I'm going to rest in the better that Jesus has done. I, I dare you. Give it a shot. And that comes as an offense because it says that you can't do anything to guarantee your future. But it comes as a comfort for those of us who see Jesus for what he is. We don't need to. The empty tomb is this bold, powerful declaration that everything's done. All you get to do now is rest in it. This is the good news. There's no formula or recipe to to get right. And this is downright scandalous. And it's almost too good to be true. But this is true. The kingdom comes through suffering. The kingdom comes through loss. Because it's through this that Jesus ultimately does what we could never do. Think of how Colossians says this. And think of how this picture of the gospel is visible for us. The worst thing that you can do to a person is to kill them. Our capital offenses, right, and even capital punishments are, are right along, right? That's the highest thing, death. Causing death, being, right, being punished by death, right? This is the biggest thing you can do. And what does it say to you that the worst possible thing that anyone could do, they did to Jesus? And now Jesus has turned that most awful thing that they have done to him as a spectacle for what he's capable of doing for us. Colossians 2 says it this way. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so, friend, be encouraged. encouraged. You also can walk in faith in that. There's nothing anyone can threaten you with that Jesus does not ultimately have power and victory over. And even the awful things you experience will not speak the last word over you. And living in fear of every awful little thing is not really living, and you know it. Real life is when you look through it. When you look through the first three verses of losing and gaining, and you see in the last two verses Jesus returning to repay and Jesus coming in his kingdom. Here's some examples that I would just encourage you for mission and for life. Uh, even for mission, there's a story you've heard me say. I heard a, 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 a missionary named Joseph Tzone to Rom- Romania as he was sent out. And this is, as we are, who are believers in the room, are, are considered to, as we think about what it looks like to, in faith, lay down our own lives. I want to tell you a story uh, about Joseph Tzone. It says that when, uh, he, he tells the story of how, how when he was in Romania and when he was being arrested, threatened with uh, other people had been beaten, other people had even been executed. And, uh, and he was facing... Uh, one of his, one of the officers, and he even got kind of like passed up to one of the most high-ranking uh, officials. And, and, uh, and, and as he was being interrogated, he, he shares that this is what he told the interrogator who was threatening to kill him. He says, what is taking place here is not just an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between me or between my God and me. My God 
is in this suffering teaching me a lesson through you. Now, I don't know what that lesson is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will, do me the, you will do to me only what God wants you to do, and you will not go one inch further, because you are only an instrument of my God. And so every day, he said, I saw those six pompous men who tortured him as nothing more than my father's little puppets. In another interrogation, he, he was speaking to an officer who was threatening to kill him, and he said, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing me, and my supreme weapon is dying. Here's how this works. You know that my sermons on tape have been spread all over this country, and if you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my own blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has one of those tapes will pick it up and say, I better listen to this. I better listen to this again to what this man was preaching because he really meant it. He sealed it with his own life. So, sir, he tells the interrogator, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before if you kill me. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He says, after I told them this, the interrogator sent him home. Another officer who was interrogating another pastor told of him, he said, we know that Mr. Sohn would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider, he says, the meaning of that statement I remembered how for so many years I had been so afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted so badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided that I was ready to die for the gospel, they were here telling me that they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I had tried to save my life, I was losing it. But now that I was willing to lose it, I had found it. He says that dying for the Lord is not an accident. It's not even a tragedy. It's part of the job. It's part of the great ministry. It's part of the greatest way that we declare the goodness of God. So friend, hold on to Jesus until you die. You may lose things for the sake of the gospel. Hold on to Jesus as you lose them. He's better. Nothing that you can lose is greater than what you can gain in Jesus. And so, friend, even for some of you, if it means going to a place where, where you're not welcome to die for the sake of the gospel, right? There are billions of people in southern Saudi Arabia and northern Yemen. There are more Christians in this room than there are amongst the billions in southern Saudi Arabia and northern Yemen. Pray for that, knowing that some will go and some will die. Because getting the gospel to where it's unwelcome will cost you. And that won't be a, uh, it won't be a, a problem. It won't be something that, that Jesus is caught off guard by. So friend, hold on to Jesus until you die. Hold on to this profession. Maybe it'll be a martyr on mission. Maybe it'll be an old man or woman dying in your bed. Maybe most likely it'll be somewhere in between. And yet, whatever the case is, hold on to Jesus as you lose everything. He's better. That's a picture from, from mission. But here's a picture from life. You and I are privileged to live in a, in a time and place that the disciples did not. We have seen and heard the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, let's get busy living. If you're in this room, you've heard the good news. Even at a time that we've sung and prayed and I've spoken, that the greatest enemy and his greatest weapon have been turned against him so that now his greatest weapon, death, is a shame. His greatest weapon, a cross is something we adorn ourselves with. And you're living in a time and place where you hear the good news that death is not the end. So friend, give your life to something that's worthy. And Jesus is that. And so, if you're not sure you're a Christian, you have questions, here's my encouragement to you. Finding life is, is not that you devote yourself to finding life as an in and of itself. When we seek ourselves, we actually lose it. And when you make a, per, a particular thing your life, you, you lose it. And yet when you lay those down, you become something else entirely. And just like Christ, when he laid down his life for you and for me and was raised by the Father on the third day, he became something indomitable. They can't shut us up. People have been talking about this for 2,000 years, and many have gone before us and died for it. So just stop for a minute and think, why is it that that happened? 
Why is it that you and I are still talking about Jesus? None of us look like the people in this book. We didn't speak the same language. We came from, none of us are dressed like people in this book. And yet, this good news has traveled across ethnicities, cultures, language, countries, oceans, to where now we're in the middle of South Dakota talking about how good Jesus is. And all of that came through what? Jesus laying down his life and God raising it up again. He returns to pay. He returns to rule. I'll end with this picture. When I was 13 years old, 13 years old it was a, a kind of a transformative experience. I was working uh, for a guy. I was working for his business. And one day he uh, set me out to a farm. Uh, I worked for his farm, but he set me out to paint one of the houses and barns that were in his farm. And uh, I was making like $4 an hour. Um, and that was a ton of money. That was my concept of money. And so he says, I'm going to have you paint this barn in this house. And he said, here's what uh, you need to do. He said, I've set up an account for you at the hardware store. Get whatever you need. I've set up an account for you. It'll cover whatever you need. Now, again, for a 13-year-old, that, that might as well have been a genie in a lamp. It was like, what? <laughs> I, I mean, again, my concept of money was $4 at a time, right? Like that's... It was like, whoa, I don't know, right? I mean, again, maybe it's not seemed like a big deal, but it was, it was power. Now, every business does this, right? Every business gives their employees credit cards or whatever, covers their expenses to do their job. I had never done that before I was 13, right? And so when he said, I've set up an account for you, I'll cover everything, that blew my mind. I'd never had that before. You, you should have seen me walk into that hardware store. I'll take that. No, I'll take two of that. Yeah, one of those, right? I mean, just, I was like, you, 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 if you'd have seen me, man, I was living. Because I, I was, at that point, I was the most wealthy person at all. Did you, did you hear the good news of Jesus returned? He will come back to repay. Hear the good news of that. Through death, he has the keys over death. And when I was 13 and my boss told me, I'm going to set up an account in your name, get whatever you need, I'll cover you, it blew my mind. And so, friend, I have good news for you. Jesus, through death, has come back to repay. He has set up an account for you and say, I have what you need. Charge it to me. And you might even say, following Jesus will cost me. Right? I might lose my job over this. I might lose a significant amount of wealth giving to this. I might lose, right? I might lose my future or career for this. And I say, give Jesus a run for, the money, for his money. He says, don't you worry. I've got an account in your name. I'll cover you. And you might even say, what if Jesus, following Jesus costs me my entire life? I want you to hear the good news of the resurrection. He says, friend, I got an account set up for you. I'll cover you. I have an account set up in your, na in your name, and I will cover everything you need, even if it costs you your life. We get a perspective of who Jesus is and what he's, accompl and what he's accomplished. He comes back as a judge and king unlike anyone else. In the last two verses, he returns to do something no one else has done. Because friend, people have come and gone in the history of this world. Men and women who were brilliant, who were smart. Men and women who were accomplished. Men and women who were high achievers. Men and women he would remember, who were famous, who were well known. And every single one of those men and women, at some point or another, succumbed to death. They were prey and under the power of sin. But then there came another man. There came another man. And unlike all of the men and women who had gone before him, instead of being prey to sin, he had power over sin. Instead of being overwhelmed by death, he overwhelmed death. Instead of being tempted and overpowered by Satan, he crushed the head of that ancient snake, triumphing over death. Friend, there is nothing that you can lose that is greater than what Jesus offers. Jesus is the one who has laid down his life so that you have an answer to the question, what is a soul really worth? And he has now overcome death, and he will return as a judge to make right all that is broken, and he will come back as a good and kind king to restore all things as they should be.
Do not be afraid. Matthew says, and Matthew tells us about Jesus, he says, do not be afraid. The angel said to the women who came to the tomb on that Easter morning so many years ago, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And now this is my favorite part, because this is a reference probably to like Matthew chapter 16. Remember I told you the turning point was like, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And they're like, no, nah, I don't think so. And he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, I love this part. As he said. <laughs> it was as if the angel was like, don't you remember? Have you forgotten? This is what the God of the universe wanted to do all along? Have you forgotten? Oh, you of little faith, he says elsewhere. And he says, now you come and see the place where he lay. This is powerful, friend. The stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out. We know he can walk through walls. He does it to meet his disciples, right? The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that you could look in. And you could see and go, oh, this is what God is like. This is just what he said he would do. Now, friend, you can turn to him, trust in him, find hope in him, even resurrection in him, because there's nothing you can lose better than what he offers to you and for me. Let's pray together and thank him for that. God, thank you so much that you are merciful and kind to us. You are gentle when we need gentleness, uh, and you are firm even for Peter when we need firmness. Thank you that you, you and your goodness know the difference, and you, like a good father, know how to love and give good gifts. And so thank you, Lord, that you, in your death and resurrection, Remind us of that. Now, as we turn to respond, as we come to a table where we are met with the power of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, might we remember that the power of these things is visible only when we see through them to see the empty tomb. Thank you that the angels rolled the stone away so that we could look in and realize that death no longer has a hold on Jesus, and so therefore for us and him, death no longer has the last word over us. And so even as we proclaim the Lord's death, as we take communion, remind us, keep at the center of our focus and attention that we proclaim the Lord's death as power because he has overpowered it for us. As we prepare ourselves to take this, might we look away from our own sin, might we look away from our own weakness and frailty, and might we look to the sufficient sacrifice given to all those who would believe. Thank you, you offer this to us in Jesus' name, amen.